Hello, America. I'm Robert Reese, and welcome to CEO Show. We're here today with Dr. Jeffrey Balser. How are you? Just great. It's great to be with you, Robert. It's a real pleasure, and especially because Jeff is the president and CEO of Vanderbilt University Medical Center, which most people have heard of already. But we are going to hear a remarkable story about a transformation that happened, a rare one. But bigger than that, we're going to hear about culture. And this applies to every organization. So as CEO, really since 2009, so, you know, you're you're almost two decades in there. Talk about the organization. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And truth be told, it's really my favorite thing to talk about when I talk about Vanderbilt Medical Center you know, I was um, a medical student here um, back in the early 1980s and finished uh, the MD-PhD program and, and was leaving to go to Johns Hopkins and do residency training. But at that time, I, 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 I spoke to myself and recognized that the culture here was really special and that I knew I'd miss it. And I, and I actually did miss it. And it's one of the reasons that I found a way to come back in 1998. And um, eventually, when I ended up in the CEO role, it was clear to me that the place cared deeply about whether its new leader would preserve that. Um, and um, I can I can tell you lots of stories, but there was a there was one big strategy meeting I had with a bunch of what you would imagine as kind of grumpy professors. And um, had them rank the things they valued most and the culture and um, kind of caring atmosphere of the place they ranked equivalent to um, publishing in science and nature, which I thought was really interesting. And I was pretty sure would not have been the answer at other places I'd been. So the challenge has been Robert, that as we've grown and, and like all big academic medical centers over the last 15 years, we've, We've tripled and maybe quadrupled in size. Maintaining that kind of atmosphere is a real challenge. And the other, the other reason it's a challenge is, like many professions, healthcare has guilds. And there's the white coats, um, and then there's the blue suits. And the white coats have a very different orientation where the patient is at the center and everybody should be focused on everything the patient needs. And the blue suits are raised differently. And the blue suits, the executives who may not be physicians, care deeply about the patients. But at the same time, their their orientation is around the sustainability of the whole enterprise and its economic sustainability. And so those are that's a culture clash. And I, and I found early in my tenure, it was really important to call that out and not just kind of run by it because I'd really experienced it my whole career where the hospital CEOs and the department chair doctors were talking past each other. And what happens is when those fights happen, it all dribbles down throughout the organization. and Pretty much everybody's just in conflict. So we, we built a number of programs over the years, um, to try to improve the way people work together and ultimately how they feel about one another across all these different constituencies. One that I really like to speak about, we call Goal Fest, where we put 
the clinical leaders and the health system leaders, the white coats and the blue suits, all in a big room together. And we put the the medical center's incentive goals, things like, you know, how many surgeries are we thinking we should be doing this year? Or how long should it take to get an appointment? Really discrete operational goals. And we as, those goals are assigned to all of our leaders in different ways as part of their compensation. But what we do is we have them all in a room together talking about why we're not hitting them. 15 years ago, that was a bloodbath because everybody was pretty sure it was the other guy not paying attention and it was everybody else's fault. And what we learned over time was how to how to structure those discussions in a way that it was about us. And people began to realize that it's almost never a single individual. Two things happen when people start to meet that way. They realize that the that the problems are complicated and no single individual is the reason things are happening or not happening. And people gradually become more and more aware of that. The other thing that happens is people actually get to know each other. So the president of the hospital actually gets to know the chair of surgery as a person. They realize their kids are playing together somewhere in a school. They they become familiar. And when people really know each other, they give each other more grace when they're managing conflict. And so <clears throat> we've been really deliberate about having people who might be viewed on different sides of, shall we say, historic peer groups um, in coordination together, working on problems together to build that different kind of culture around solving problems. It's really worked well for us. I want to commend you so much on that, Jeff, because I've been on hospital boards for two dozen years. I've interviewed most of the CEOs of major enterprises. I have never once heard, this is the first time, white coats and blue suits, but it's so visual. But now when you talk to culture, you have about 40,000 people. You have two more what I would call really unique practices. One is the leadership assembly and the other yeah. is the monthly CEO videos. Just sure. share, because, you know, we've got 600,000 CEOs here. They want to hear. These are, are fabulous ideas and all what I'd call original thinking. Well, thank you. Um, let me talk about leadership assemblies first. Um, so, we actually already had a practice 15 years ago when I became head of the medical center of having these assemblies and they were on a stage. Um, and the people that could come were the people that were manager and above in the medical center. They were three or four times a year. And the people that could come were the people that could actually physically get there. And um, we would, I would talk about our plans some of the things that were challenging us. And then we would actually recognize people that would win awards. And this was also a culture management play because we have a credo at the medical center around behavior and we would nominate people to win these credo awards. And people loved that. It was really popular. So what happened during COVID was we realized that we couldn't all get together in auditoriums. So we decided to turn it into a TV show. And um, 
we actually hired um, a producer who um, is is with a a company here in Nashville, and the person that leads this actually used to be a television news anchor, um, a nationally syndicated television news anchor. So I had professional help, so to speak. And, um, and that also played into our hands because the medical center is really getting big and we're on, you know, several campuses and we have over 200 outpatient locations. So we were really missing a lot of people, um, who, who we wanted to hear this content and participate. So we created a two hour TV show that lets me give a talk. It lets some of my senior leaders also speak. But it's highly orchestrated, and we have videos honoring our Credo Award winners and other kinds of kind of visually appealing activities that really people get a lot out of. And it, and it makes the place feel good about what I'm thinking and understanding what I'm thinking and not sort of wondering what I'm thinking. And in terms of culture management, Every single one of those leadership assemblies, I'm hammering on aspects of culture, such as what kind of behaviors are appropriate and what kinds of behaviors do we want to encourage and caring about the team members. And that turns into more care for the patients. Those kinds of themes um, are things that I really work um, in leadership assemblies. The other thing I started doing during COVID, and I think most CEOs would argue that trying to communicate with 40 or 100 or 200,000 people is really hard. Um, and I used to try to do it in writing every so often, but I was pretty sure a lot of people weren't reading it, <clears throat> is I've moved with the same um, TV producer to four to five minute CEO videos that are crisp and short and on a single topic. And I I write the script myself and I edit it like crazy so that it really fits into that time period. The other thing he's trained me to do is speak into a teleprompter in a way that it doesn't look like I'm speaking into a teleprompter, which is an art form, I tell you. It takes a lot of work, um, but I've become pretty good at it. I'm not a one-take wonder, but I'm um, I can get it done in two or three takes usually now. So... I do that now about once a month during months we don't have a leadership assembly. And, you know, if we're going to be doing some slowing down in hiring, for example, because revenues are down for whatever reason, I'll, t I'll talk to the whole medical center about that directly and say, here's our situation. Here's what we're doing and here's why. Um, it was enormously helpful during COVID because people were scared and I was able to reassure our workforce that we weren't doing layoffs and we weren't doing, you know, we were going to keep everybody employed. And I was able to maintain, I guess I was able to suppress a lot of anxiety across the workforce through this mechanism. <clears throat> and frankly, it's pretty time efficient as a way to communicate. And when people realize that they're short and they can watch them in four or five minutes, we get thousands of people watching these things so i've really i've really grown to like it um and i find the more i do it the better i get at it um it's like anything you practice and you get better so
Well, there, there you have it so far. We're about to take a commercial break, but you just all received a PhD in culture. And what I, what I want to tell you, part of it, when we come back from the commercial break, you are going to hear why. Because out of maybe 40 of the top CEOs in healthcare I've interviewed, I've never heard of this background. You are going to hear about a CEO who has a background in engineering and why that is a key to success. Back in a few. Hi, this is Robert Reese back on the CEO show where we interview the CEOs who reinvented the fabric of America. We're here today with Dr. Jeff Balser, and he's the president and CEO of Vanderbilt University Medical Center. We're going to talk about a few things. We'll talk about technology. We're going to talk about a fascinating concept he learned from his father-in-law. And, and first, we're going to talk about this being an engineer. Now, Graduated from Tulane as an engineer before he became a doctor. And um, just tell me, what, how has that helped you in building this incredible culture and in managing the day-to-day operations for large organization and in transforming it? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, Robert. And I certainly wouldn't go so far to say is that all CEOs need to have been engineers, but the engineering is one way to kind of develop a, a facility with problem solving because in engineering school, the professors used to tell us we could bring whatever books we wanted to to the test and we could bring our mother if we wanted to. We just needed to figure out how to solve the problems. So um, that kind of mentality around life is about constantly solving problems and that's what the work is, I found very helpful and it structures how I think. It also, I think, structures my emotions around managing the operations of this city-size enterprise. And the the metaphor around my father-in-law, my father-in-law um, was quite a funny guy. And he he had this knack for trying to do home repairs, much to my mother-in-law's chagrin. <laughs> um, and... He loved the glue gun and he loved caulking. And he would always say to me, Jeff, when you own a house, you caulk till you die. And um, and I actually think managing the operations of a complicated enterprise are a little bit like caulking till you die because you can look anywhere and there's something broken all the time. And, and what you do is you just keep looking for things and you keep poking and prodding all the time. You never stop. And having people hopefully help you repair what's broken um, because complicated systems are always broken. And, and it, it's, I can think my engineering background has just helped me be at peace with that, that that's really what operations are um, and sort of relentlessly pursuing improvement. It's it's a great story, and I, I love that quote. So um, when you think about the engineering, I remember when I interviewed David Stern, was, you know, the commissioner yeah. of the NBA for 30 years. He said he had his JD, but he said, Robert, I never really use it, but it's a way of thinking. And that's yeah. really what you've used. You've used engineering as a way of solving problems 
And we know in healthcare, there are always more problems. <laughs> now, one, by the way, one thing I learned from him, he said, um, I asked him about management. He said, um, episodic micromanagement is underrated. Yeah, very well said. I love that. So here, here is one problem all of healthcare has had, and it's technology. But somehow yeah. at Vanderbilt, you have done tremendous in terms of health information technology, and you're really a national leader completely in that. Talk about what you've done. Well, thank you. And certainly the fact that I'm an engineer uh, by training and many of my management team members are physician engineers, PhD engineers who are also leading the place. Um, that's helped us um, really get our heads around this growing area of health information technology. I learned when I was a medical student and an intern, frankly, that the real substance of healthcare is information and and it's structuring that information so it's useful for us to make decisions that's really what we do in healthcare um and and so the growth and expansion and the increasing sophistication of information technology has been something that the medical center hasn't just consumed but has actually participated in the development of so the the first chief information officer came here in the early 1990s. Vanderbilt had its own fully implemented electronic health record by 1995, which is about 15 wow. years before most wow. major medical centers. When I was chief research officer before I got this job, I worked with that individual to build a research program around health IT that today is a biomedical informatics department that has over 100 faculty. It's like the size of a pediatrics department. And it's surrounded by a health IT staff of over 1,000 programmers. So we, we work to not just utilize health information technology, but structure it, innovate it, do creative and imaginative things with it that help us with health systems operations, such as advising our doctors, hey, maybe you want to think about this drug and not that drug, or why are you ordering all these tests? Shouldn't we just order these two? <clears throat> Excuse me. So the decision support aspects that you can use the data to inform doctors and nurses about what they might want to consider are really, really helpful in healthcare because the the pool of information that we're all struggling with in order to decide what to do on a minute-to-minute -minute basis is overwhelming and people need to be prompted with options that their education can help them siphon through but having to create everything de novo in healthcare is just impossible so wiser and wiser informatics support is really what i think a lot of healthcare information technology is trying to do for us and that's where vanderbilt has has really led the first in fact, George Bush came to Nashville and announced the nation's health IT initiative at Vanderbilt Medical Center because we had already accomplished a lot in this area. And now the, the nation's precision medicine initiative, um, which is called the All of Us Project, where, where Barack Obama announced it, that we're trying to sequence a million Americans and marry that to their health information. That project is based here. 
That is terrific. We have only about a minute and a half left. So I'm going to ask just rapid fire, quick questions. One in one sentence, you're what CEOs need to know about healthcare. Just give the top line of it. I know that's a 20 minute conversation. Yeah. Culture is job one. And um, everything else is manageable, including a pandemic. If culture is is sound, if your culture is good, it builds resilience to withstand just about any assault that you're delivered. Um, So you'll never regret investing in culture. Fabulous. And the last question is, you went through what very few people have done, and you only about 40 seconds for this. Um, you were, you, you got a call from Vanderbilt that, uh, you want, they want to separate the healthcare organization. You end up going through the whole process, all new stuff. You ended up on go, doing a roadshow to, to, um, to generate 1.2 billion in debt. And since then you've grown from 2 billion to over 7 billion. You've had tremendous success. What advice, and you've like just one minute on this. Do you have for CEOs when they want to transform, truly transform an organization? I would say a couple of things. One is um, be open to feeling again like you're a freshman in college. Um, If you're really going to do something transformative, at least what I experienced at that scale, I, I didn't know enough law. I didn't know enough business to do this on my own. And so my CFO, Cecilia Moore, who who did this with me, was one of my most important mentors. Um, And so a a lot of humility is critical to success when you're trying to do something where it's not right in the middle of your schoolhouse, right? You you really need to say, look, I'm, I'm learning again here. I'm smart enough to assimilate all this, but I really need to understand how it all works, what's most important. And so I I often would say to my wife, gosh, I feel like I'm doing an MBA and a law degree through this whole process because I'm having to understand things. And that's part of the fun, actually. But if people really know you want to learn from them, they're much more um, giving in terms of what they'll teach you. And it was one of the most valuable learning experiences of my entire career. I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And there we have it. I, I want to tell you, Jeff, congratulations on building a world-class top organization with, with a truly profoundly brilliant culture. These ideas we've learned on this. What a pleasure it is having you on the CEO show. Well, Robert, I've greatly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. And just everyone, here's the advice that you learned from Jeff. Number one, learn from everyone. And you really, you have to take it like you're a college freshman. If they know you want to learn, you will learn. But the second thing is, prod around and do things. Take the advice, caulk till you die. And there you have it. (laughs) 